in the history of the sasana, Lord Buddha's dispensation, his teaching, there is a special place, a significance that is given to a certain lay disciple, a householder, a businessman who lived at the time of Lord Buddha. In fact, he was there in the, even the first year of Lord Buddha's dispensation, who had such a pivotal role in making the Buddha's teachings be so abundantly available by making sure that Lord Buddha and his bhikkhus had a place to stay. The person being referred to is Anathapindika. Anathapindika, the rich businessman, householder, uh, had heard about the Lord Buddha as he was visiting his uh, sister and his brother-in-law. They, they were very wealthy. And he usually used to get all the attention whenever he went to their home. However, that one particular evening when he got there, I believe it was in Rajgir, and uh, he sees there's this big commotion in the household of his sister, his brother-in-law. Unlike other times where he would get the attention. So, and he sees this and he says, what's going on? Is there a wedding? that I don't know about? Is there a big celebration? They say, oh, yes, there is. We're just preparing food for tomorrow. Food for whom? And they say, we're preparing for tomorrow's dana, the food offering. Well, for whom? Is the king coming? Some royalty? And they say, oh, the Buddha will be in town with his bhikkhus. That word shocks his entire being. The word Buddha just freezes him in his place, Anathapindika. And he asks his brother-in-law again, what did you say? He says, Buddha, and he asks him again, third time. Third time the man mentions brother-in-law, Buddha. Long story short, uh, the next morning he can't wait. In fact, he wants to go immediately, immediately to see the Buddha. He does see him uh, and uh, 
And there's a lovely story behind it, but I just want to jump into the sutta itself. Some other time, maybe I will be able to go over the meeting um, between Lord Buddha and Anathapindika. But Anathapindika became the greatest benefactor, male benefactor of the sasana, the female being Visaka, the rich businesswoman who um, built, uh, well, Anathapindika built uh, for Lord Offord the Jeta's Grove. He built an entire monastery. He purchased the land from Prince Jeta. <laughs> And uh, by covering the entire Jeta's Grove, the entire garden, uh, which is a big, big, big park, uh, with gold pieces from his own treasures. Um, and then he ended up building a monastery there. So many of the suttas that we have from the Nikayas mention in the beginning how this was spoken by Lord Buddha. While he was living at uh, Savati in Jeta's Grove at Anathapindika's park or monastery, to be specific. So, uh, this sutta is at the householder Anathapindika's deathbed when he's about to die. So, there have been in the suttas. Uh, several scenes where there are individuals who are about to die. And the most prominent one, of course, is uh, depicted in the uh, longest of the suttas, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, where we have the deathbed, if you will, of Lord Buddha himself. The second uh, important one, uh, one can say, as far as uh, it's significant, especially because that also happens to be a householder. And that is Chitta's own death. Chitta, who died as an anagami, he lived as an anagami as well. He was one of the greatest Dhamma teachers in the sasana, while being a lay person, while also teaching many, many bhikkhus. Him being a lay person. So, um, so that's another scene of a person dying and the Dhamma that is imparted in that environment. In Chitta's case, it is Chitta who is advising both Devas and his own relatives on the Dhamma. In this case, in this Sutta, uh, which happens to be another example of a death a uh, bed scene uh, that is with Anathapindika's own death. So, as I mentioned, this comes earlier in the Sasana's history. And um, because most of the years that Lord Buddha had spent at Anathapindika's monastery, uh, most of those years uh, were done, were, were, were lived rather, uh, while Anathapindika had already di had died much earlier. So uh, that is basically the background contextual that I could share with you at this moment. 
So this is from the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle-Length Discourses, number 143. There are 152, so this is on the latter portion of the series of suttas, discourses. So Anatta Pindiko Vada Sutta. The advice to Anatta Pindika. Let's begin. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was living at the monastery, donated by Ananta Pindika at Jeta's Grove, in the city of Savatri. It was at that time when the householder, Ananta Pindika, having become seriously ill, was now suffering and experiencing much pain. By the way, the name Anatta Pindika, um, Anatta would be um, translated as a refugee, a refugee, someone who is discarded, downtrodden, kicked out of their home, homeless. And Pindika, uh, if you ever heard of Pindapada, Pindika, Pinda means uh, um, like this motion, if you can make it in, in in Asian countries, uh, even today, they would eat, you know, without usually without any fork. So they would scoop up the meal, the rice, the curry with their fingers like this from the plate. So it makes a nice more mouth, uh, like morsel of food that you can put it in your mouth. So that's pinda, pinda, like a mouth, like it's, it's a mouthful. So you put it in your mouth. So pindika means. The person, Anatta Pindika means the person who gave morsels of food to refugees, to those who were without a home. So Anatta Pindika, in his past lives, uh, uh, he, that's what, how the commentaries are read. And uh, actually I've heard Bhante Gunaratana describe it like that. So I found it to be lovely. So I wanted to share that with you. Years ago, he mentioned it. Um, so let's continue. Then the householder, Anatta Pindika, addressed one of his attendants and said, Good man, go and approach the Blessed One. And after paying homage to the Blessed One in my name, with your head at his feet, inform him of the following Bhante, the householder, Anatta Pindika, is now seriously ill. Also, Go and approach the Venerable Sariputta. And after paying homage to the Venerable Sariputta in my name, with your head at his feet, inform him also of the following. Bhante, the householder Ananta Pindika is now seriously ill. While you add the request. Bhante, it would be good if the Venerable Sariputta would approach the householder Ananta Pindika's home out of compassion. One would think, living in the 21st century, especially if you've read or heard about the suttas in so many suttas, you hear the name Anatta Pindika's monastery, Lord Buddha was living there, etc. And now he is dying. Naturally, one would be inclined to think, well, of course, he's going to ask for the Buddha to come and visit him. Not Anapapindika. Because he never wanted to 
oblige or to uh, to uh, to to basically uh, request even Lord Buddha to come because he knew that in time people would say, well, of course the Buddha had to come. Look at him, Sanatana Bindika, the the biggest benefactor of the Sasana. Even when he was alive and he would go and listen to the Dhamma discourses of Lord Buddha, he never would impose. He never would go and make Lord Buddha uh, give him a Dhamma discourse simply because they were living in his monastery, in a sense, that he had donated. He was so humble, Anattapindika. He was never you know, uh, imposing himself in those gatherings. And similarly with the bhikkhus. Because he never wanted to have his act of superlative act of generosity to ever be used as a method to create a situation where Lord Buddha would even be asked. He's not even asking Lord Buddha to come. He's asking Venerable Sariputta. That says so much about his character because this is it. He's going to die. He knows he's going to die. And still he's not. But nevertheless, you can tell that he wants Lord Buddha to know that he is dying. And it is up to Lord Buddha himself. If he feels that it would be appropriate and it would not cloud in any way, people's minds of him going, that he is putting it out there, but he's specifically asking for Venerable Sariputta to be told uh, or, or informed about the request that he has to have him visit him. By saying, yes, master, the attendant left to go and see the Blessed One and did as instructed. He went and paid homage at the feet of the Blessed One in the name of his master, Anathapindika, while informing the Blessed One of the householder Anathapindika's serious illness. Then he approached the Venerable Sariputta, and after paying homage to him, he sat to one side and said, Bhante, the householder Anathapindika is now seriously ill, as he added the request. Bhante, it would be good if the Venerable Sariputta would approach the householder Anathapindika's home out of compassion. With his silence, the Venerable Sariputta accepted the request as he quickly put on his robes and by taking his alms bowl and outer robe with him, together with the Venerable Ananda, as the second bhikkhu, he approached the home of the householder Anathapindika. Having sat down on the prepared seats, the Venerable Sariputta inquired, Householder, are you, uh, I hope you're keeping well. How are you feeling now? Are you feeling better? Are the painful feelings you're experiencing getting less or more severe? I hope it is the ending of the painful feelings that you are noticing, not their increase. Bhante Sariputta, I'm not keeping well at all. 
I'm not feeling better. And instead, I'm experiencing much suffering as the painful feelings are getting far worse. Bhante, it is the increase of the painful feelings that I'm noticing, not their decrease. Bhante Sariputta, my situation is unbearable and I'm not doing well at all. My pain is increasing and intensifying. The pain is not nearing its end and it keeps persisting. Bhante, the pain I'm experiencing in my head is so severe that it feels just as if a strong man was cleaving the top of my head with the edge of a sharp sword. In the same way, Bhante, my head feels like it is being sliced by the dry and violent internal winds. Bhante, I can't bear the pain. Bhante Sariputta, my situation is unbearable and I'm not doing well at all. My pain is increasing and intensifying. The pain is not nearing its end and as it keeps persisting. Bhante, the pain I'm experiencing is so severe that it feels just as if a strong man was continuously tightening a leather strap that is wrapped around my head. In the same way, Bhante, my head feels like it is about to explode by the dry and violent internal winds. Bhante, I can't bear the pain. Bhante, Sariputta, my situation is unbearable and I'm not doing well at all. My pain is increasing and intensifying. The pain is not nearing its end as it keeps persisting. Bhante, the pain I'm experiencing is so severe that it feels just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice were to cut open my gut with his meat cleaver. In the same way, Bhante, my gut feels like it is being cut open by the dry and violent internal winds. Bhante, I can't bear the pain. The internal winds usually in those days, uh, as it is today in, uh, in the case of uh, Ayurveda, which is the Indian medicinal system, uh, they have these channels, so they have the winds, it would be called, uh, and sometimes called Vayu, sometimes called Vata, and uh, they can, you can also think of them as cramps uh, that we, uh, a person experiences in their uh, gut, um, and just basically, they would put it under the umbrella of winds um, as a part of the four elements. Of course, it could also be heat, which is the fire element, which they would use as well in uh, using analogies, for example. Bhante Sariputta, my situation is unbearable and I'm not doing well at all. My pain is increasing and intensifying. The pain is not nearing its end as it is still strong and persistent. Bhante, the pain I'm experiencing is so severe that it feels just as if two strong men had grabbed hold of a weaker person by his limbs and started roasting and grilling him over a pit of burning charcoal. In the same way, Bhante, my body is burning with hot fever. Bhante, I can't bear the pain. Bhante, my situation is unbearable and I'm not doing well at all. My pain is increasing and intensifying. The pain is not nearing its end as it keeps persisting. Then, householder, replies Venable Sadiputta, you must now train yourself in this manner. 
I will not cling to anything that is seen by the eye. And I will not settle on anything brought in by eye consciousness. I will not cling to anything that is heard by the ear. And I will not settle on anything brought in by ear consciousness. I will not cling to anything that is smelled by the nose. And I will not settle on anything brought in by nose consciousness. I will not cling to anything that is tasted by the tongue. And I will not settle on anything brought in by tongue consciousness. I will not cling to anything that is touched by the body. And I will not settle on anything brought in by body consciousness. And I will not cling to anything that is cognized by the mind. And I will not settle on anything brought in by mind consciousness. In this manner, householder, you must train yourself. Here we're seeing the six sense spheres brought in by body consciousness. That's the third. It's not a third thing which we think about. For example, when we're talking about the Patichasampada, usually it's, you know, it's very linear, right? So first there's, there's an eye that works. Then you have an object that's visible as color, as shape. So one is one, the other one is two, and obviously there's going to be three. So this is it. Consciousness usually is seen as number three. But it is the meaning of the two. It's not a third thing. It's not an object. It's not a thing that exists on its own. It's simply happening. A happening. A verb. Which is also seen as a sense awareness. But the mind, what it does is it takes that in and it objectifies it. It, it considers, it's, considers it as a data, as a point of reference. Soon that turns into a mind, into the thing that I like type of a mind. My liked object, my hated experience. I hate the way sandpaper feels, for example. There isn't that carrying over into. That's what is being said here as, I will not settle on anything brought in by the tongue consciousness. Oh, that, that cake tasted so good. Oh, let's have some more. There is a perpetuation. There is a dwelling of, on that experience. They want, we want to have a repeat of it. So Venerable Sariputta is saying, don't do that. Now, this is a critical point because Venerable Sadhguru is noticing. And you're going to notice how each of the instructions that are going to be coming up, they're saying the same thing in a different way, with a different slant, from a different angle, from a different perspective, but essentially it's the same thing. So next he says, furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. 
I will neither cling to visible forms nor dwell on or lean into visible forms. I will neither cling to audible sounds nor dwell on or lean into audible sounds. I will neither cling to odors nor dwell on or lean into odors. I will neither cling to flavors nor dwell on or lean into flavors. I remember I would see individuals who would get Christmas gifts. And sometimes those gifts would include perfume or cologne. And seeing that that was not the person's most favorite cologne or perfume, the person would either take it back and replace it with the kind that they like at the store, or just give the perfume or cologne to someone else and go and purchase themselves a new one, the one that they liked. Leaning into the odors would be one example. I will neither, neither cling to flavors nor dwell on or lean into flavors. I will neither cling to tactile objects nor dwell on or lean into tactile objects. And I will neither cling to concepts and mental objects nor dwell on or lean into concepts and mental objects. In this manner, householder, you must train yourself. We like to engage in concepts that make us, well, are pleasant to us. Sometimes we think that that's a totally different type of an experience. It has, you know, it has a carte blanche, so it's okay for us to have concepts and engaging in concepts that we like. But that's different than, let's say, eating certain type of food that you find very delightful or pleasurable. No, the biggest sense organ is the mind in this tradition. And we have a strong, strong preference to thoughts that we like, including the way we understand and interpret the Dhamma. That's why there's heavy duty uh, or thick, thick layers of dust on a person who holds on to wrong view, even wrong view towards the Dhamma, while being in the midst of Buddhist teachings. Because introducing new concepts are challenging. Similarly, today someone was asking about asubha or looking at something that is not repulsive, but seeing the repulsive. So what would be the relationship in the person that says looking at something beautiful, lovely? You're looking at a picture of wonderful, you know, streets, maybe in Europe, maybe Switzerland, maybe somewhere like that, clean. And then someone shows you a short clip of uh, Varanasi in India, the streets, the boondocks, sewage system open. There is no sewage system. Everything is wide open. Dogs, people, 
cows, all eating from the trash, which is everywhere. Even as I'm using these words, these adjectives, these nouns, the descriptives, do you find in your mind any sense of preference versus a repulsion, some type of an aversive attitude in your mind? Well, already the practitioner needs to get to a place where they will see this happen, but they will not lean into it, including the concepts, the mental objects, which I just gave you, images or mental concepts. The way we understand the Dhamma, we think we understand it, how much of an adherence is there towards these concepts? because they can also give us a lot of satisfaction. And that itself could be a major hurdle. But here, Venerable Sariputta is giving us uh, the key to break through that, to open the gates and come out of such a way of thinking that can get a person stuck. Furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto I consciousness with no leftover thoughts to be clinging to I consciousness. I will not grab onto ear consciousness with no leftover thoughts to be clinging to ear consciousness. I will not grab onto nose consciousness with no leftover thoughts to be clinging to nose consciousness. I will not grab onto tongue consciousness with no leftover thoughts to be clinging to tongue consciousness. I will not grab on to body consciousness with no leftover thoughts to be clinging to body consciousness. I will not grab on to mind consciousness with no leftover thoughts to be clinging to mind consciousness. In this manner, householder, you must train yourself. I wanted to use this term, leftover thoughts. Again, if you see, it's the same theme in a sense that's playing through all of these paragraphs. Venomasarikutta is trying to show different angles of the attachment that we have towards life, towards experience, especially at this very important juncture for him, for uh, Anatta Pindika, because this is a critical, critical time that a a being goes through the last emotional state, the last thoughts. So he's trying to demolish these states of clinging that might be there in Anatta Pindika, because don't forget, he was a Sotapanna. He was not going to fall into the four lower realms. They knew that. Anatta Pindika knew that. But Venerable Sarkuta is trying to give him the tools to break through, perhaps even become an arahant. So the leftover thoughts, it's like if you ever looked at an object with a clear background, not a clear, but brighter contrast, there's a strong contrast and there's an object and you looked at it, you stared at it and suddenly you close your eyes. There's an after image, isn't there, in your eyes. You see the shape of it, depending on how intensely 
lit up that object was or how bright the object was in comparison to its contrasting background. For a moment or a few instances, you're going to have a leftover image. Unfortunately, in our case, because of papanjas, because of our proclivities, because of our sankharas, those few moments can go all the way and stretch out into a whole entire lifetime. We like to repeat, we like to replay, we like to go from one relationship to another, the same kind of relationship, same kind of a job, same kind of thinking, same kind of feeling, and we try we do our best to replay the dramas of the past. We drag ourselves through the mud. If it's depressive states, if it's, oh, it always happens to me, yes. Or, oh, you don't understand. I've, I've had tremendous trauma. I still have not met a single person who's never had a trauma of some sort, either in this life or another life. But those are the stories that we perpetuate to make our life more palatable. That's a leftover, 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 series of leftovers. And that is one of the reasons why we don't have freshness in our faces, in our gaze, when we look at life. That's why we have a difficulty to be grateful to life. So every single inhale that no one owes us, <laughs> But we expect it to be there. The moment you exhale, at the end of the exhale, you're like, yeah, I know there's going to be an inhale coming, just like the sunrise. Furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto any contact made by the eye, nor dwell on any thoughts as a result of that eye contact any thoughts as a result of that eye contact. So you're not turning it into a story. Again, we see the instruction that Lord Buddha gave to Bahia here. When seeing Bahia, just see. Don't make it into something other than that seeing. That took place, by the way, over there in the past. It's gone. It's gone. By the way, this pretty much eliminates poetry, doesn't it? <laughs> so, um, but that doesn't mean that we cannot express the moment as it took place to inspire us to look and to be in that new moment that's coming up always, 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 always without latching on to the past or hoping for the future. I will not grab onto any contact made by the ear nor dwell on any thoughts as a result of that ear contact. I will not grab onto any contact made by the nose nor dwell on any thoughts as a result of that nose contact. I will not grab onto any contact made by the tongue, nor dwell on any thoughts as a result of that tongue contact. I will not grab onto any contact made, excuse me, by the body, 
nor dwell on any thoughts as a result of that body contact. I will not grab on. By the way, this eliminates also consumerism, if you noticed. That lotion that you like, that soap that you like, the way it feels, oh yes. Advertising agencies, they closed shop already. I'm halfway through this paragraph. I will not grab on to any contact made by the mind, nor dwell on any thoughts as a result of that mind contact. In this manner, householder, you must train yourself. I was mentioning earlier today to the meditators, listeners, when I was covering the Chula Gosinga Sutta, how Venerable Anuruddha, Venerable Kimbila, and Venerable Nandiya, three Arahants, living together in the Sal tree forest of Gosinga, would not communicate with words. But every five days or so, they would gather together to discuss the Dhamma. Not their experiences, but the Dhamma. For example, they would say, what do you think, friend? Lord Buddha meant in the Parayana Vagga of the Suttanipata, in this section, when he said this. And they would share their own interpretations. Like last time we talked about the seamstress, Majesutta. And you saw how the five or six venerables, they had uh, taken one verse that Lord Buddha had given in one of the suttas. And each of them actually approached it from the way that they understood. It was fully experiential. It was coming purely from their own world of experience. They weren't glued to their interpretations, of course. And they were so, it was morphing. And you see how they were so related. It's like talking about the different facets of a single diamond. And then they go to Lord Buddha so that he could tell them as to what he intended by that verse and who among them was the closest in their interpretation. But none of them were attached to their idea. No leftover thoughts. No clinging as a response to that mental contact being made. Why? because their sati is so strong, they're able to pick it up right there at the beginning because their yoniso manasikara is so pinpointed, it's so laser sharp at the beginning instance of a concept, of a thought, of a contact happening in their mind, let alone for the other five senses. When the skin touches the surface, one lovely exercise I would encourage you to do is when you wake up to go to the bathroom at night, let's say, or you're tossing and turning, or early in the morning when you wake up, be there. The first, very first moment of you becoming conscious. Is your skin touching? 
Is your hand touching? Are your fingers touching? Which finger is touching the whatever it is first? And what is the next thing that happens? Is there the mind kicking in, resembling it to something, a memory, how it felt when you touched this? Or when you're about to put your feet on the ground, let's say you're sleeping on a bed, which foot is touching the ground first? And when you're getting up to walk, which leg is advancing first? And are there any thoughts going on playing in the mind? Meanwhile, play this game. If you want to sharpen your sati, play this game. This is when meditation becomes fun. It's no longer a chore. It's no longer, oh, Bhante, I have to sit one hour in the morning or two hours. No, you're taking your sati with you wherever you go. That is meditation. We hear oftentimes about arahants who have attained through wisdom. What is that? They didn't sit down and go to public libraries, sit down and, and read and surround themselves with books to figure out. No, that's not wisdom. Wisdom comes because their sati was there with them all along. What I was describing to you is applying Dhamma Vichaya through and through and through and through. That's what brings wisdom. It's inevitable. Because sati's blaring spotlight is on everything. And you have six doorways. You can start with one. You can make one more predominant than the others. But then slowly, slowly, you'll notice that it will seep into the other senses, the other sense spheres, without your help. Suddenly, you're going to be noticing that, oh, this is fun. This is interesting. Because you're constantly engaging with life through these six senses, unfortunately, blindly. And that's what Venerable Sariputta is trying to help Anatta Pindika to see through that. Furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto any feelings born of eye contact. So now he's talking about the feeling. It's not just the contact, nor the leftover thoughts. I will not grab onto any feelings born of eye contact, nor cling to any state resulting from that eye contact. I will not grab onto any feelings born of ear contact, nor cling to any state resulting from that ear contact. Perhaps it's an annoying sound you're hearing. Well, can you avoid it? No, it's there. Okay. You can suppress it, but that's not what this is saying. There's an openness to this. That's why sometimes people, most of the time actually, people when they practice samadhi, their mind is so collected, so stable, but it is, there, it is, it is not, uh, it is very fickle. 
they open their eyes and boom, it's gone. Well, what kind of a samadhi is that? Was it samadhi to begin with? Well, we can start doubting that because it was suppression, suppression, the result of suppression, it was suppressed. It was one-pointed. That's not going to give us wisdom. Samadhi in reality is openness. The mind is becoming more stable, collected. So you see with the sati, yes, I'm hearing this very annoying sound. Okay, let's, it's not in my control. There's this alarm that went off for an hour and a half. Let's observe that. It's not my car. I don't have a car. It's there. Somebody's car is just going. And no one seems to go and turn it off. Okay. Listen to the conversation or monologue, the annoyance in you. Because there's something that's happening, a feeling that is being generated as a result of the ear contact. Ear contact. I will not grab onto any feelings born of nose contact, nor cling to any state resulting from that nose contact. I will not grab onto any feelings born of tongue contact, nor cling to any state resulting from that tongue contact. I will not grab onto any feelings born of body contact, nor cling to any state resulting from that body contact. I will not grab onto any feelings born of mind contact, nor cling to any state resulting from that mind contact. Even the thoughts, especially the thoughts, because that's where it's all happening, ultimately. The feelings, how do they start? Well, there's a relationship with the sanyas, isn't there? With the memories. Oh, it smells like, what is that? A skunk? What is that? The car engine, somebody put the pipe connected their tail uh, of the car's tail exhaust into my window. What is this? Ah, what's happening? There's disgust, there's this, there's imagery, there's concepts, there's papanchos. It's all happening and it's happening very, very quickly, very fast. That's why the sati has to be laser sharp. Remember that lovely image that Bhante Nyanananda gave of table tennis. He says, think of your opponent as none other than Mara. And he has the racket in his hand and his key, he keeps hitting it. Be ready. Don't let it bounce off of your table without you hitting it back at him. And one of the best tools to do that, to apply on top of the sati, is to realize the role of anicca throughout. Well, the nose is not always going to bring me the carbon monoxide and the exhaust pipe of this car. Okay, I can close the window. Oh, it's the whole house is filled up with the gas. Okay, let me turn on the AC or something. 
Okay, I can't, let me leave from the other side of the house. Let me get some fresh air. Observing with, uh, with responsibility. Be quick to see the tendencies of the mind and the tendencies or habitual tendencies are none other, none other than the sankharas. But most of us are victims of it, of, of the, the sankharas. And we like to play the victims, but we have different concepts to even get us out of that by denying ourselves that role that we're playing. Because ultimately, we just want to sit there in the movie theater with the lights out. We don't want to turn the lights on because we start believing these stories that the Sixth Sense doors are bringing us, keep on bringing to us. If you want to develop your sati, what you essentially are doing is wanting to come out of the movie theater. You can't have them both. <laughs> Staying in the movie theater, completely being lost, enmeshed in the story, in the acting, in all of that, while at the same time wanting to sharpen your sati, your attention, because something has to give. Often, you, we have lived through countless eons in sansara. Now you have the Dhamma. Aren't you tired? That's what Lord Buddha is asking each of us. Aren't you already tired? This Dhamma is for those of us who are tired from that. A tiresome state is another word for Dukkha. Are you sick of it? That could be another definition, actually. A good one for Dukkha, getting sick of it. <laughs> sick of all of this nonsense that we tell ourselves. And we want to do something about it. And that's your third noble truth right there. Furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto the earth element, nor be attached to any state pertaining to the earth element. Solidity, think of it solidity. I will, so he's narrowing it down to any angle. So almost like an attorney who's covering all the loopholes, is all the bases are covered. He's not leaving anything to for chance in a sense, to chance. I will not grab onto the water element nor be attached to any state pertaining to the water element. I will not grab onto the fire element nor be attached to any state pertaining to the fire element. I will not grab onto the air element, nor be attached to any state pertaining to the air element. I will not grab onto the space element, nor be attached to any state pertaining to the space element. I will not grab onto the consciousness element, nor be attached to any state pertaining to the consciousness element. In this manner, householder, you must train yourself. I have a sense that uh, later, uh, Abhidhammic uh, commentators had something to do with this because no sutta is off limits uh, when you happen to be uh, uh, 
carrying over, carrying and, and spreading the Dhamma through repetitions, through recitation, through just mnemonic devices when there were no writing. So uh, over centuries, in fact, five and a half centuries have passed until the words of Lord Buddha, the canon, was put into some form of writing. In 500 years, a lot had happened and kept on happening, by the way. So, but consciousness, in essence, it ha has been seen, as well as the space akasa, um, oftentimes termed as, as an element itself, in the same level of importance as the other four primaries. So in some places you would see that uh, they are both included, sometimes without the consciousness, just the space element is there. Like earlier I was mentioning in the uh, Ayurveda, you don't have just the four elements, you have uh, the fifth one as well, space. So uh, furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto matter, nor dwell or lean on matter. I will not grab onto feelings, nor dwell on or lean on feelings. I will not grab, you get it. It's, now he's talking about the five aggregates, right? Namarupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vinyan. I will not grab onto uh, uh, memories and mental associations, Sanyas nor dwell on or lean on memories and mental associations. I will not grab onto habitual tendencies, nor dwell or lean on habitual tendencies. This is who I am. Oh, you don't understand. I have, went, have gone through so much. Uh, that is relinquishing your responsibility to your sankharas, basically. Whenever I see this kind of thing, this is how I react, okay? This is how I am. Well, what you're saying is you're giving legitimacy to your sankhas, plain and simple. Meanwhile, you want to be free from your suffering. Well, you go ahead and make up your mind. Are you sick of it or not? I will not grab onto habitual tendencies of sankhas. I will not grab onto sense awareness, nor dwell or lean on sense awareness. For example, the person says, well, simply because I was jolted by this noise, you cannot expect me not to have a reaction to this. Well, that means that I am identifying with the sound. So I have no control again. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying if this happens, then this happens. So it's very linear. It's very mathematical. Very stupid as far as the Dhamma is concerned. There's no responsibility. Well, of course things are gonna happen. Things are not gonna feel you know, comfy and hunky-dory. They're not gonna be like that. Sometimes they are, fine. This is what we mean by going from one end of the pendulum to the next, trying to maximize the occurrence or reoccurrences of pleasurable, pleasurable moments. And that's what we call life. Yes, that's what we want. Versus the other extreme, which is we don't want that. Oh, the painful. Why can't I always be surrounded by beautiful music? Some, I don't know, some birds and this and that in a nice forest. Yeah, try to live there for longer time period than what you had in mind. It's like that very, very comfortable 
$5,000 bed, comfy, comfy mattress or chair. You sit there one day, second day, already it's torture. Now you want something else, you crave something else. So that is being a slave to your senses, to your sense awareness or consciousness. Furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto the realm of infinite space, nor be fixed upon the realm of infinite space. Now we're talking about the formless, formless uh, or arupa jhanas, because these can become um, very attractive because it removes you from the anything that is rupa loka, whatever is mundane in a sense. Um, I will not grab onto the realm of infinitely spreading consciousness, nor be fixated upon the realm of infinitely spreading consciousness, because it feels so nice when you're in the sixth jhana, when it's spreading, your consciousness just keeps on, wow, it's like as if you are in space and your consciousness is now going, not just space itself, it just keeps spreading, spreading, it's like, oh, it's almost like a, con a continuous buzz. It's like being drunk. That's the buzz. You can become addicted to it. So addiction comes because you're grabbing onto it, including this Arupa Jhana. I will not grab onto the realm of nothingness. Imagine even nothingness can be grabbed onto, which indicates that there is ignorance. And that's why ignorance or avijja is the last sanyojana. You will not become an arahant if there is avijja. If there is any kind of grabbing to anything, including the arupajanas, forget about it. It's not happening. Nor be fixated upon the realm of nothingness. I will not grab onto the realm of neither perception nor non-perception, nor be fixated upon the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. In this manner, householder, you must train yourself. Uddakaramaputta, the son of uh, Rama, the person who taught Siddhartha Gautama how to get into the eighth jhana, he himself had not gotten into it, but he worshipped it because his father gave him that tool, which he was now the teacher of, even though he never got into it, <laughs> he was able to get to the seventh jhana. But Lord Buddha, or Siddhartha at the time, was able to quickly get into it. And I was mentioning this also, it came up today in the, today's talk, but Lord Buddha, Siddhartha said, well, it's supposed to be like this, like this, a minute this much, is this, this is what's happening, this is, and Uddaka was saying, yes, yes, yes. So he was checking all the boxes. <laughs> he says, that's exactly what it is. You've done it. And then he experiences that. He finally gets into it himself over time when Siddhartha is striving to become the Buddha. And he does. But he already was latching on to it, Uddaka. He was able to experience it, but now he was holding on to dear life to it, for the eighth jhana. I've met quite a number of people who would flaunt it, who would just say on retreats, yes, I can get into the eighth jhana. Yes, yes. I was surprised. I thought you're not 
supposed to be like that. <laughs> but uh, it's the human mind, deluded mind, that loves to grab onto anything. And anything that you grab onto, immediately it turns into adhamma, at least for you. Furthermore, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto this world, nor entertain thoughts pertaining to this world. Now he is now going right into the most sensitive, most tender spot for Anathapindika. This is the most crucial point in a person who's about to die, in their thinking, in their, especially in their feeling. You must train yourself, he says. I will not grab on to this world, nor entertain thoughts pertaining to this world. Oh, look at my, my wife, my daughter. I'm going to leave her behind. Or my belongings. And people start planning as, okay, make sure my father, before he died, he was basically distributing his uh, household items to us without anyone asking for them. For example, he decided to give me his big screen TV. And I'm like, Dad, I don't watch TV. I don't use it. I don't buy it. I'm not interested. He's like, no, no, no. It's a perfect, perfect size for you. But I'm not interested in it. Well, he was not just giving it away. He was attached to it. That's what it meant. People sit down and get a lawyer or attorneys to come and do their will. What is that, really? Are they leaving anything behind for someone to get? Or they're trying to make themselves feel, OK, it's in safe hands. All the things that I've worked for, OK, they're, what is that, though? That's the person's attachment to it, still. Telling themselves, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Even though I never slept for 68 years, now it's going to be gone. I can't help it. That's attachment to this world. Similarly, I will not grab onto any other world, nor entertain thoughts pertaining to any other world. Belonging. Okay, so I'm losing this. Okay, I'm... Definitely, there's no, there's never been a person who's survived this, never got out of this planet alive. <laughs> so I'm also going to be dead. Okay, so now let's uh, change our focus, our trajectory to the next life. Okay, so let us start with the Papancha factory. Let's come up with ideas. Okay, you have unending concepts and pick any part of the world, any philosophical, including the atheists. Emptiness, darkness, poof, into nothing, that kind of nonsense. It's the same thing. There is a belief into some, so you are thinking of a destination, an other world. He's saying, don't grab on, even cut that out. Don't lean into that. Also, householder, you must train yourself continuously in this manner. I will not grab onto anything that is seen. This is like the final nail in the coffin, as they say. 
I will not grab on to anything that is seen, heard, sensed, or known through any of the six senses, in case you missed any, nor entertain any states of mind that are the results of pondering, pursuing, and exploring through discursive thinking, logical reasoning. It is in this manner, householder, that you must train yourself. So he covered all of the areas, all the bases. Now, on hearing these words, tears began streaming down the householder Anathapindika's face, for he was now delighted beyond any measure, crying tears of joy. The Venerable Ananda, noticing this, asked him, Householder, are you clinging fast to what is familiar, or are you fading into despair? Venerable Sari, uh, Ananda, uh, I don't know if he was Sotapanna yet at this point, because this is the first year of Lord Buddha's dispensation. So I don't, I, uh, I don't know if he had met Venerable uh, Punna Mantani Putta, who happened to help him to attain to Sotapatti, because what he is saying essentially is. He's demonstrating his ignorance, Venerable Ananda, by asking this question. Because if he knew that Anathapindika was a Sotapanna, there's no way that he would fade into despair, which means that he would be losing his attainment of the security that the Triple Gem provides. That's what, mean, uh, what this statement means, fading into despair, falling into fear, panic, anguish, despair, that kind of thing. So that does not fit a person who is a Sotapanna. It's impossible for them to fade into despair. Now, what it says in the first part of this uh, question, are you clinging fast to what is familiar? So are you holding on to the things around you, to your loved ones, to your grandkids, to your daughters, to your sons or whatever? because he couldn't understand the tears that were coming down Anathapindika's face. And then beautifully, Anathapindika says, Bhante Ananda, I'm neither clinging fast to what is familiar, nor am I fading into despair. But now I realize that despite the fact that I have honored, paid respects to, and served the great teacher and the bhikkhus for a long time. Yet I have never before heard a Dhamma talk such as this. Then the Venerable Sariputta said, Householder, a Dhamma talk such as this is not given to a lay person in white clothes, meaning an upasaka or upasika. Rather, only those who have gone forth are taught in this manner. But Bhante Sariputta, discourses like this should be given to lay persons in white clothes, for there are indeed clansmen who have but a little dust in their eyes, with just a few defilements left in their hearts, who will most certainly lose such a great opportunity as a result of not hearing such a Dhamma talk. But by hearing it, there will be many who understand the Dhamma. Let the Venerable Sariputta therefore from now on 
offer such Dhamma talks to lay people in white clothes as well. So many people have gone back and forth and, you know, people who like to debate will always debate over anything. And this is like, you know, uh, a big thing for them is like waving a, a red piece of fabric in front of a bull, you know, they're going to come after some a statement like this. Ah, so Lord Buddha taught to the two different kinds of teachings? No. Lord Buddha says again and again, he never teaches with closed fists. There's no, there are no secrets. There are no esoteric teachings in the Dhamma. If there are, that's not Dhamma. Plain and simple. The teaching for lay people, the teaching for bhikkhus are the same. It's the Eightfold Path. Nothing should be giving us the idea that there's a two-tier teaching here. There's some type of an exclusivity, an exclusive club. No. Remember, chitta, Hattaka of Alavi, General Singha of Vesali, a uh, bunch of people, lay people, were Dhamma teachers to bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. They were noble disciples. Don't forget Visaka, who was uh, the previous husband in the same life of uh, the Venerable Dhammadina, who became an Arahant. And they have beautiful discussion in the Chulaveda Sutta. Beautiful. One being an Anagami, the other one being an Arahant. And they're going at it. They're asking questions. Well, he's asking questions and uh, Lady Dhammadina is, is responding until he reaches a point where she says, ah, you've reached your limit as Nanagami. So um, we have to be very quick, careful uh, because there's a lot of misrepresentation of the Dhamma. So we shouldn't have these wrong assumptions that, uh, well, the difficult part of the Dhamma is given to the monastics and the simpler, you know, the dumbed down version of the Dhamma is given to lay people. There's no such thing. There's never been such a thing. However, we have to understand that uh, Lord Buddha's approach was looking at a lay person who would be very inclined, let's say, uh, to still maintain uh, a pleasurable life. Like someone today was asking me, Bhante, uh, could you say a few words about asubha practice of, on the repulsive? And I recalled how I used to know of a bhikkhu who would say, well, that's a technique that you should never teach a lay person. And I was like, wait a minute, why? Lord Buddha never said that. I never come across it. But there can be some reasoning somewhere. And that's what I brought up today to this lady who asked me this question. And I said, uh, of course, Anyone can do these practices, including maranasati, the contemplation of death, when the person is so attached to the body, the attraction, oh, I, don't, I never want to get sick, like this whole 
last two and a half years or so of people becoming obsessed over their health as if no one's going to die in the first place. Now by wearing the mask or something, they're gonna have some miracle happen. They're gonna extend their lives indefinitely. We're all gonna be dead. So who are you kidding? Just a delusion. So similarly, a person who's that attached to the body could benefit from maranasati. Similarly, someone who's obsessed over uh, sensuality or sex. When they're looking at someone, they see someone attractive, and they seem to, because of their habitual tendency, the eyes, etc., they're programmed to just go or think about or visualize if it's a a person that they, a coworker, and they see qualities in that person that go, you know, he could have been a great match for me, or she could have been a perfect wife for me or something like that. Watch the mind. But sometimes that's not enough because you're dealing with physical entities. So for that, it would be perfect for you to just pick any area of the body that you seem to be drawn to. Pick it out and just probe it mentally with an x-ray type of a approach. Don't stop at where you are attracted to, see and this and that, you just go deeper. Are you deep enough to actually smell the contents of the intestines? That's your asuba for you. So. But I wouldn't be teaching the asuba practice, let's say, to a newly married couple who are just starting their lives. That would be unwise, who, who want to, unless they want to become bhikkhus and bhikkhunis or something like that, or you know, live uh, a recluse life for some reason. So Lord Buddha did not, uh, or the monks, in this case, the chief disciple, they didn't find that lay people were suitable because they're still living their lives. They still have a family, this and that. But bhikkhus, on the other hand, they have one goal in mind, especially, remember, this is the earlier, earliest days of the sasana. Whoever put on the robes, their intention was very clear. They wanted to leave behind. That's why we say going forth, pambaja. You're going forth, leaving behind all the pleasures that you would have as a layperson, opportunities. Hence, the instruction has to reflect that, to prepare the mind to get you to that goal fastest. So that's why Lord Buddha would teach uh, first dana, and then talk about the virtues, sila, and then talk about the devas. Then prepared, uh, having prepared the mind to talk about the Four Noble Truths. He wouldn't have to go through that, you know, linear progression in the case of a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni. So someone preserving it from the outside, they would think, oh, the, you know, why, why didn't Anatta Pindika or people like him get this opportunity? No, because it was not the milieu, the environment for that. But here is the time where we see Anatta Pindika voicing 
what we also see in the Mahavagga, where Lord Buddha, in the air, even earlier than this time period, when we had the 1250 Arahants. Remember? Before they became before they came to that, uh, where we have the uh, Ovada ceremony, where Lord Buddha gave the uh, special teaching, he had earlier sent them off. One by one, he said, go, make the Dhamma available for everyone with little dust in their eyes. He didn't say go to bhikkhus, to everyone, he said. So here we see the opportunity, and he is a spokesperson for all laity. And because of him, we see this expanding, and we have it in the suttas. Uh, so, yeah, so I just wanted to share some thoughts on that. Then, after having encouragingly spoken to, inspired, aroused, and enlightened the householder Anantapindika's heart with this enlivening talk on Dhamma, excuse me, the Venerable Sariputta arose from his seat, along with the Venerable Ananda, and they both left. Soon after they had left, the householder Anatapindika died and immediately reappeared among the devas of the Tusita heaven, the realm of the happy ones. Then Anatapindika, now the glorious son of the devas, late that night, while illuminating the entire Jeta's grove with a resplendent light, approached the Blessed One, worshipped him, stood to one side and said to the Blessed One, this indeed is the lovely Jeta's Grove as he looked around, the home of the Sangha of the Noble Ones. He had built that, adorned by the King of the Dhamma himself. This itself fills my heart with so much joy. Beings considerate of death purify themselves through their bodily actions with knowledge of the Dhamma along with virtuous behavior and wholesome living, not by the authority of their clan, nor by how much wealth they possess. Today you have people, Buckingham Palace, other places in the world, they think of themselves as having come from noble birth. What a joke that is. They celebrated, I don't know what, 70 years that the Queen of England was sitting there and thrown. But the whole thing, the whole concept is a joke. It's like we, sh as human beings, we are still living in that low, you know, subordinate mentality of just, oh yes, you're blue blood or something. It's nonsense, but people rely on that or the wealth. He was the wealthiest person at the time in India. The king would come and borrow from him. Anatapindika, what he's saying is not by the authority of their clan, nor by how much wealth they possess. It is by the knowledge of the Dhamma, virtuous behavior and the wholesome living. He was a testament to this. He lived that truth, and now he was tasting that truth as a deva. It is for this reason that the wise person, on recognizing what is indeed good for them, 
carefully examines and applies the Dhamma into his own life, thus purifying his life completely. In this way, of all those bhikkhus who have crossed over, the ones like Sariputta, possessing wisdom, virtues, and true contentment, are indeed the foremost. Having spoken these verses, Anathapindika, now the son of the devas, waited for the Blessed One's approval. And knowing that the teacher had approved of his words with his silence, Anathapindika paid homage to the Blessed One and, after circumambulating and keeping the teacher to his right, he vanished from there. In the morning, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus and said, Late last night, bhikkhus, a glorious son of the devas, while illuminating the entire Jada's grove with a resplendent light, approached and worshipped me, stood to one side and said, This indeed is the lovely Jada's grove, the home of the Sangha of the Noble Ones, adorned by the king of the Dhamma himself. This itself fills my heart with so much joy. Beings considerate of death purify themselves through their bodily actions with knowledge of the Dhamma, along with virtuous behavior and wholesome living, not by the authority of their clan, nor by how much wealth they possess. So any of these nobility, so-called nobility, these royals or wealthy people in the world, Mark Zuckerberg, or I don't know, Windsor families and other, other royalty around the world, not just in the West, everywhere. If they have any intelligence, any semblance of a wisdom in them, with all the resources they have, they could actually benefit from this teaching here. Purifying themselves through bodily actions. While you are alive, you have a chance of doing something. Not when you're about to croak and die, when you're on a wheelchair, after you've spent 70, 80, 90 years of just sucking all the wealth and the health of people, when you could have done so much like Anathapindika did. Most people don't know or don't realize that Anathapindika, after he built the monastery, sometime later, he lost his entire wealth. Entire wealth was gone. But he got it all back and then some. Because his heart was in the right place. Bodily actions can help a person despite their physical condition, despite if you're coming from a wealthy family, like you know, some royal, some prince somewhere, some CEO, a wealthy CEO, or a congressman who's been in power in your seat for like 658 years in Washington. What are you doing with all that? with all that money. Do something for others. That's what Anantapindika did. And that's what he's saying. Purify yourself with bodily actions, with knowledge of the Dhamma, with sila, and with wholesome living, doing things that you don't, well, that you want to happen to you, not doing things that you don't want to happen to you and your loved ones. It is for this reason that the wise person on recognizing what is indeed good for them carefully examines and applies the Dhamma into his own life, thus purifying his life completely. In this way, 
Of all those bhikkhus who have crossed over, the ones like Sariputta, possessing wisdom, virtues, and true contentment are indeed the foremost. Having spoken these verses, bhikkhus, that son of the devas waited for my approval. And knowing that the teacher had approved of his words with my silence, that deva paid homage to me, and after circumambulating and keeping the teacher to his right, he vanished from there. On hearing these words from the Blessed One, the Venerable Ananda suddenly exclaimed, Bhante, could that deva have been Anathapindika, now the son of the devas? After all, the householder Anathapindika truly loved and respected the Venerable Sariputta. Very good, Ananda. You are correct, replied Lord Buddha. You have reached that conclusion by relying on your deductive reasoning and not much else. For indeed, that deva is none other than Anathapindika, now the son of the devas. That is what the Blessed One said. And the Venerable Ananda was delighted in the Blessed One's words. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Not much else. Venerable Ananda figured it out because he was, well, he, was, he had a bright mind, analytical mind, but he didn't have the capacity to see intuitively, to read the mind of Anantapindika, to see through the words to really feel whether he was just using his logic in a sense. And that's why Lord Buddha says, you've reached it simply by your deductive reasoning, not much else, which is an encouragement, an indirect encouragement by a versatile teacher to help the student learn and practice, 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 which Ananda was not too eager in doing at the time, especially. So Lord Buddha is saying, practice Ananda, go deeper. You need some work. <laughs> so I will uh, stop here and, uh, and see if there are any uh, questions that you might have that I will try and attempt to respond to, share some Dhamma with. By the way, we have several different uh, instances where um, Lord Buddha facilitates uh, those who have experienced uh, the first level of awakening by delineating, uh, because the person would experience certain things, but they don't know the technicalities or the specifics or the significance of a certain attainment, let's say Sotapatti in the case of Anathapindika. So you have elsewhere where Lord Buddha clearly delineates this and uh, there's a term called the four limbs, the four aspects, the four branches, or not the branches, but the four, divi not divisions, four limbs of, of, of stream winning, 
which include basically the um, the confidence, this strong sense of confidence and faith, sadha, that is unprecedented in the person prior to being a sotapanna. But now they're, they, they, have, they have it. It's there. No one can convince you otherwise. It's, it's impossible. Not even your own old ten tendencies. So you have this incredible trust, confidence in the Triple Gem, in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. And you also have this moral position Your sila is constantly growing. If you've ever planted mint, my grandmother used to plant mint in, in these pots, you know, tin pots, which somehow they would jump or they would grow, they would spread. They would be everywhere the mint, even though you plant it in one spot. So the sila of a person who is a sotapanna grows like that in all directions. It starts permeating everywhere. Suddenly, the person also has respect, obviously, towards themselves that, again, is unprecedented. But they also have it towards the noble ones the other Aryas. That's why they cannot think of actually saying anything bad about any noble one out there. They become very protective. So you have these four limbs of a Sotapanna, four branchings of the attainment of Sotapanna in, within the person, because it's just growing and growing. Last week, uh, here someone was asking about, because I was covering Ratana Sutta, the jewel discourse, and it's all about the noble disciples, specifically two uh, categories, even though they mentioned the eight, but the, the Sotapanna and the Arahant. And uh, I was mentioning how, you know, in it, in the Sutta, in the Ratana Sutta, uh, Lord Buddha says how the person would never get an eighth birth. At the most, they will have seven more births. No eighth. So there was a question, I think, and I said, even, I mean, you have to be a very, very dumb sotapanna. In fact, so lazy, so incredibly lazy, to wait until the seventh birth. Because imagine if it's spreading, it's, it's proliferating, it's like, it's so fast, it's like, think of the mint, mint leaves, they're just like spreading. Affecting every single nook and cranny of your life, imaginable. And like Venerable Kamaka said, when uh, he was being taunted by the elder monks, when he was sick. So there was a go-between, right? If you remember, we covered it last year, I think, 
where the younger bhikkhu was uh, novice was going back and forth you know venerable kemaka are you not out yet and he's like no you know but myself i'm doing this and then the other one say well who's then is is experiencing the pain so this poor bhikkhu would have to go back and venerable kemaka says forget it he takes his leans on his stick and he goes to the monastery is like okay guys okay and he gives them a dhamma talk and he gives them a beautiful analogy of where does the fragrance of the lotus come from is it in the petal is it in the stem is it in the leaves is it where but it is there and that was in reference to this sense of self which most people misunderstand when they talk about anatta especially when they talk about the sotapanna oh you're not supposed to have sakaya ditti so they equate sakaya ditti with the, even the word self it's like a thorn in the side for most people they don't understand it because they never experienced it they're lost in their own ideologies and venerable kamaka was trying to explain to them similarly using that the fragrance of the lotus it spreads everywhere the person becomes so drenched with with sila everything they do is with sila they're not thinking it like ajahn man would say i practice the most important precept which is the mind that is the hub that controls everything it's like the spokes of a bicycle. If you take that middle part, the hub out, the whole thing collapses. You don't have a wheel. That is the essence of it. So the Sotapati is a crucial part. And that's why Venerable Sariputta was known as the teacher or the teacher to go to, because that is also the uh, most difficult uh, stage because once you're in, you're in because once you're in, that's it. There's no going back. You've passed the point of no return. You got at the most seven more lives and that is if you are exceedingly lazy. So I was encouraging the person to know <laughs> that it's a lot sooner it's a lot quicker and don't be surprised if you attain it in the same lifetime because it makes the person really the heart throbs for the dhamma it's wonderful from what we see in the suttas in these beautiful examples and hopefully it moves us to come out of this mediocre life that we lead and to seek out the Dhamma in our hearts, nowhere else. It's not going to be found outside. It's there inside. And Lord Buddha has given us tools to find it. There's a torch, flashlight, this and that, you know. Do it, use it. So, I hope my Wi-Fi is not well, okay. I got it back, so it was acting weird. So uh, it says your internet connection is unstable. So in case I lose you, <laughs> don't lose the dhamma. <laughs> Are there any questions?
Don't put the Dhamma on hold. Don't put the present, your present, on hold. We'll do it later. That is not the way to taste the Dhamma. Because the day will come where you will be on your deathbed. Because you have kept on procrastinating. Anantapindika could rely on his faith because he had attained Sotapati long before his deathbed. In fact, when his daughter was dying, all his family members had actually seen the Dhamma. They had the Nyanadasana. They had actually attained. Um, so uh, his daughter, when she was about to die, um, he knew that his daughter also had seen the Dhamma. She's about to die on her deathbed. She's smiling. She's glowing. She looks at her father and she says, um, I forgot to mention, but she mentions little brother. She addresses him as little brother. Something like, take care, little brother, or you know, continue on the path, little brother, something like that. And then she closes her eyes with a smile and she dies. And then she, he goes, Anatapindika goes, and he's in tears, but also joy. But he's kind of, Lord Buddha senses that he's somewhat sad. And Anatapindika shares with him that he's somewhat perplexed, but he says, well, she was delusional in the last moment. And Lord Buddha says, what do you mean? And he says, she looked, my own daughter looked at me and said, little brother. So she must have been losing it at that moment. And Lord Buddha says, oh, no, 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 no. And he says, why, Lord? What, 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 what is it? He says, Lord Buddha says, she had every right to call you little brother. But he says, I'm her, I'm, I'm, I was her father. How could she call me a little brother? She sa he says, because you are merely a sotapanna. She died a sakadagami. She was higher in nobility than her own father. These are not stories. These are facts. These are facts. And that's why the truth of the Dhamma will keep it alive. The Dhamma never dies. But the teachings will disappear. But so long as we are holding true to Sila Samadhi Panya, these will become our realities. You will taste these levels and you will know them for yourself, but you will not do them while you are procrastinating. Simple as that. So, 
I have uh, exhausted my energies for the day, apparently, because <laughs> I've been teaching the whole day since this morning, and I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to do so, because there are so many interested individuals coming, seeking out the Dhamma. So hopefully by getting the teachings, whatever I am sharing with you of the Dhamma would allow you to go and find out for yourself. To be realized by the wise for themselves. May you be those wise ones. And may you see the truth that is the Dhamma. So let us share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you. May you grow in your practice faster and much more, with more fervency than fresh mint grows in a lush, fertile soil. Until next time. Be well.